0: We're at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and this place in 2nd Corinthians specifically in chapter 7 we draw so much encouragement from the Word of God and as you come today maybe you want some encouragement from the Word of God we will find encouragement in God's Word as every time specifically in this text today. Because we've seen and we've read even in last week's text how now Paul was exhorting the church of Corinth to come out, to be separate, to be holy, to not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. And even in that, that exhortation, it's a very hard direct exhortation that some of us even today need to hear. To not link in, to not be in a relationship with, to not be uh, bound with an unbeliever. Because there is an automatic, a natural division that takes place that can ultimately lead to us compromising or, or a, 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 a friction now, a division that is taking place when the believer is bound to the unbeliever. That is a warning. And I think we need to take that warning very seriously. We shouldn't hear that warning and, and say, you know what, well, you know, I, I, I am, I, I'm bound or I'm thinking of, of linking up or partnership or teaming up in certain ways. Knowing that ultimately that's going to draw our commitment away from Christ. And if, if you study this text, maybe you know someone you understand and you know how divisive it can be to be bound with someone that doesn't fear God. when Someone that doesn't have a commitment to God. With someone that that God is not number one because your goals, your vision, your values are all different now. And He says, therefore, I want you to come out of that and I want you to be separate. I want you to be separate, says the Lord. Why? Because He's encouraging the church to be holy. He's encouraging us to be holy. And that's one of the greatest encouragements that we can receive as we go into this new year for holiness. The pursuit of holiness in our life. There's sometimes we think the pursuit of happiness in our life. (laughs) What about the pursuit of holiness in your life? Because that's where true fulfillment and contentment comes, in godliness. And he's told us, come out, be separate, says the Lord. But now he goes from holiness, and he goes into repentance. Repentance. Why? Because he's already told us, be separate in your manner of life. Be separate and you're living so close to God. Be so close to God that you're separated from the world. That's how close to God you need to be. Well, you ask yourself, how close to God do I need to be? So close that you're separate from the world. So close that you're separate from that life that you used to live in. So close that you are united with God and separate from the world. But now he's going to take us to what real repentance means. You see, all of us here need repentance. We need daily repentance. We need repentance, personal repentance to take place in our lives. And sometimes we ask ourselves, what does that mean? What does that look like? Does that mean that I repent one time when I accept the Lord Jesus Christ in my life as my Lord and Savior and I repented and I'm following Him? Yes, that time was important. But every single day, personal repentance is needed. I I want you to write that to remember that personal repentance is needed. Because in order for there to be a personal revival, in order for personal revival to happen, repentance must first take place. There are times we want personal revival to take place in our lives. Maybe you want some revival to take place in your home. Revival to take place in our ministry and in our church. I desire for there to be a a whole revival to take place in our church but i understand because what god's word tells me that revival cannot take place or it will not happen until first repentance takes place we need to repent from our sin daily do you want that personal revival this year Do you want to see things change in your life? Do you want to be spiritually awakened now to a relationship with Jesus Christ? Then repentance needs to take place. And he's going to define how and what repentance looks like. Now let's go to verse 1 of chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians. And he says this, Paul to the church of Corinth, Therefore, with that being said, of coming out, of being separate, of being holy, of not being unequally yoked, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and of the spirit, perfecting in holiness and in the fear of God. Open your heart to us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. And I not say this to condemn, for I have said it before, that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together." Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, Lord, that it's living, it's active, it's powerful. I pray that whatever season that we're in in life right now, that it would meet us, Lord, your word right now. That it would prick our hearts, Lord, that it would convict us, God, that we would find encouragement. And as we wait for that personal revival, that we would welcome repentance into our life. We thank you for holiness. In Jesus' name, together we said, Amen. Amen. Now you notice how he starts with his theme. Of therefore, having these promises, pursue holiness. Pursue holiness. Now that is the goal, to pursue holiness this year. What does holiness mean? It means that you belong to God alone. You belong to God alone. You don't belong to God and something else. And there are times that we think, well, I belong to God and then I also belong to all of this as well. No, you belong to God and nothing else. And when we have repentance in our lives, we have holiness in our lives, that is now a a sign of a genuine, of a real, of of an authentic conversion. And the word conversion is important, right? Because we have converted, we have changed from one thing to the other now. It was one life, we've converted now to a new life. There's repentance that's taking place. In the first church in Acts, they would call them converts. You think about that, and, and when there was great awakenings in our country, they would say, look at how many converts are coming to the Lord. People's lives that were being changed. That's a convert. And I love that, because it's more than just a decision that you've made. It's more than a prayer that you've prayed. It's a conversion that has taken place. Do you know that that's what's supposed to take place in our life? Not just a decision, also it has to be followed by a conversion. It's not just a prayer, Is it followed by a conversion now. Now he says, therefore, having these promises. Now there are many promises that belong to us as we're walking with the Lord. In today's text, we find ourselves being reminded of the promises that he spoke about last week. In verse 6, these promises that are inherited by faith and by obedience. Do you know that God's promises in your life are inherited by faith and by obedience? You want to inherit those promises? This is how you inherit these promises. What are the promises that he's mentioning? Now the promises are found in verse 17 and 18 of the previous chapter. What's the promise? The first one in verse 17. It says that I will receive you. Verse 7, I will receive you. That is a promise from God. God wants to receive you. He wants to welcome you. Not only receive you, but if you study that text, He wants to receive you with favor. I've been praying for favor this year in my life, in my family's life. I've been praying for favor in our church for this year. God promises that he will receive us with favor. That is the number 1 promise that we see in verse 17. Not only do we see that, but in verse 18 we see another promise. What is that promise? That he's going to now receive us as a father, that he will provide and he will protect as a father. So not only has God promised that he's going to receive you, but He will provide and protect as a father. Those are the two promises that are already established, that He's already mentioned in His Word. Now He's gonna give us an encouragement based off those promises. What is your response? You see, now you've received a promise, a glorious promise, a promise that you do not want to pass by. A promise that you need to take advantage of, a promise that you want to inherit, a promise that you want to step into. (laughs) I don't know about you, but when I know that the Lord wants to receive me with favor, that He wants to protect and provide me as a father, I want to step into that promise. And I pray that you would step into that promise today. Now, therefore, having received these promises, having these promises, He says, Beloved, I love you, loved ones, church. And what does He tell us? Let us. This is an encouragement. This is inclusive to all of us. Write that down. Circle that. Underline the let us. Because that is an action. Now word. That is now an exhortation. To move us to do something. Let us. Who? Us. Together. Let us what? It says, Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Perfecting in holiness in the fear of God. You see the exhortation that comes here, He says, based off the promises of God, let us now cleanse ourselves. And that word cleanse means let us wash ourselves now. The word cleanse means let us completely be purified from anything that would defile or that would corrupt us in the flesh or in the spirit. There are certain things in our life that we need to cleanse ourselves from that are corrupting us in the flesh, in the body, and that are corrupting us also in the spirit. Let us purify for ourselves from anything that is corrupting ourselves. Let us purify ourselves from anything that is defiling ourselves and now be clean towards holiness. Now understand that right here what he says, cleanse ourselves. How does the cleansing happen? How is it that we get cleansing? How is it that me and you can cleanse ourselves from the filthiness of the flesh and of the spirit to be perfected in holiness in the fear of the Lord? Well, cleansing happens in two ways. Number one, cleansing happens as you come out, as you become separate. You cannot ask the Lord, Lord, cleanse me to be separate, to be new. However, I'm going to still stay in this lifestyle. I don't want to go step into obedience or holiness. That is not how cleansing happens. Cleansing will happen as you come out and as you become separate. That's how cleansing happens. Number two reason how cleansing happens is cleansing happens by confession, by confession. There are things in our lives that we, in order to repent from, we first must confess. You want to repent? You must first confess of these things. The Bible tells us in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just. Now. To forgive us of our sins. And here we go. This is a powerful word. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is so faithful. And in order for us to cleanse us. First we need to come out. And then we need to confess. So that we can be cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Because he is faithful. And he is just to cleanse us. That is a promise from God there as well. But to cleanse us for what? It tells us perfecting holiness in the fear of God now the word perfecting means so that you can be complete or that you can be whole that you can be maturing now in the growing process of holiness and in the fear of God you can be complete mature whole that you can be dedicated unto holiness dedicated unto the Lord holy means set apart for God you made a commitment when you said Lord I give you my life that you were separated unto the Lord the New Living Translation reads this verse says this, Because we have these promises, dear friends, let us cleanse ourselves from everything that can defile our body and spirit, and let us work towards complete holiness because we fear God. If you fear God, you will abstain from certain things that will now defile the spirit and the flesh. You will abstain and step away from and not play with. You're not going to hinder the walk that you have with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you said, I belong to God and to God alone. Just imagine if you're married or you've been to a wedding before. That you see someone make their vows and say, you know what? I vow to my wife and to someone else that I'll be faithful to them. <laughs> Absolutely, that doesn't happen. That will not, I mean, your bride will just get so upset at that moment. Please do never do that. When we make a vow, we make a vow to one person. And as we made that vow, we made that promise to the Lord. Lord, I'm going to be faithful to you. I'm going to perfect in holiness. I'm going to mature in that process of holiness. I'm going to work toward holiness because I fear you, God. And it's until we have that fear for God that it can encourage us based off the promises of God's word to now move towards holiness. Cleanse ourselves. Can we cleanse ourselves today through now coming out and becoming separate? That's a way of becoming cleansed. Another way of becoming cleansed is by confessing. We must do both in order to grow in holiness. We must do both in order to grow in holiness. Now let's read verse 2 because these promises encourage us to pursue holiness. But look what he tells us in verse 2. Open your hearts to us, Corinthians. You see, the Corinthians were growing. They're maturing at this point now. From the first letter in 1 Corinthians that he sent him, they were a very carnal church. And he exhorted them and he called them out and he rebuked every sin that was taking place. But now they started to grow. The only problem was that they were a little skeptical of Paul's ministry and they didn't really want to receive him. And he loved them. He wanted to feed them. He wanted to give them the best of the Word of God, the best teaching, the best counsel. And they were growing spiritually. However, they were not receiving Paul's leadership. And here he tells them one thing. Open your hearts to us. Receive us. Why? Because the church had a wrong attitude about him. And they didn't know really whether to trust him or not. All he wanted to do was to minister to them. And they were very closed. Therefore, it limited them in some ways. Do you know that when you have a closed heart, it limits to how God wants to minister to you? Even if you come to church that way, you come to church with a closed heart today, it will limit the way God wants to speak to you right now. That's exactly why we have to open our hearts to the Lord and say, Lord, I want to receive. That's what He says, receive us or receive from us. What does He want to receive uh, them to receive? Because He's demonstrated love, a genuine heart. He's done them no wrong. And He's going to explain how He lived with integrity, how selflessly He served them. Now understand, let's read verse 2. It says, open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. We have been shepherds. We haven't been wolves. We haven't come to try to steal, lead people astray, to come lead people after ourselves. We have done no wrong. We have wronged no one. Verse 2. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. Do you see the integrity there in that verse? We haven't been deceived, but we haven't lied to you. We haven't tried to trick you into this teaching that we're now giving to you. We haven't been dishonest in our intentions and our motives. We've been transparent. We have displayed full honesty in the ministry that we have. We've never received or took anything from you or taken advantage of you. We've become blameless now. And we have led no one astray or taken anything from anyone. You know what I like about this verse is that it encourages us to demonstrate integrity. Through an attitude of service and selflessness. He says, I haven't corrupted you. I have not cheated you and I haven't now treated you in any way deceitful now in verse 2. I haven't corrupted, I haven't wronged and I haven't cheated you. See, this is a, a life of a man that is standing blameless before these people and he is confident about the ministry in which he serves. It really explained to us that the model, this very perfect model, that the pastor or the servant here, which many of us are, that the pastor or the servant exists for the church, not the servant, not the church exists for the pastor or the servant. He said, This whole time, my only ministry, my only purpose was for you, and it was never for myself. There are often times where people want to preach a message, and it's all about just promoting themselves or promoting the church or promoting their denomination, whatever it would be, or leading people astray, making them fall in love with themselves instead of may, uh, directing them to fall in love with the Lord. He said, there is never a time where I led you to myself. I didn't wrong you. I didn't cheat you. I never corrupted you. I I didn't take advantage of the church ever. This is what Paul is saying. And it's important that we notice this because you see the transparency in which he ministers to them as we go to verse 4. I do not say this to condemn you. I'm not saying this to now blame you. I'm saying this because I want to defend now the ministry because I love you. I do not say this to condemn you for I have said it before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Wow. Is that not commitment? This is, I'm saying, I'm your, he's basically saying here, Paul, I'm your right or die here. I love you. And I'm with you whether we live or whether we die together. We are here together. Understand here that he is not condemning them. What does he teach us here? That it is possible to confront someone in love without having to condemn them. Do you see that he's confronting them about something, but he's not condemning them? I think that we need to learn how to confront an issue in love without having to condemn someone if they're wrong. And he's actually doing this. He's, he's restoring the bond of fellowship that he had with these people, with the church here. He's saying, I'm able to confront you about this without condemning you because my motive, my intention is to restore the bond of fellowship. We need to be united. Do, do you not understand that my only goal is you are in our hearts to live together and to die together? We're committed till the end, till death do us part. This is ultimate and absolute commitment. I mean, I, I think that this is such an example for us that serve in ministry, for us that serve our families. They say, we want to serve you. You are in our hearts. Whether we live or we die, we are together. We are serving till the end. We are committed to one another. That's a family. That's how a family looks. Now he's going to tell them in verse 4, great is my boldness of speech and he's going to edify them. He's going to encourage them. He's going to speak well of them. Great is my boldness of speech or I take great pride in you. Toward you great is my boasting on your behalf i speak well of you or i have high confidence in you church here verse four i am filled with comfort or i am encouraged i am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation now he's saying despite all of this despite the fact that you haven't opened yourself completely yet i am encouraged by you in spite or in the midst of all our tribulations i am encouraged now i take great pride in you church he's telling them i have confidence in you i am encouraged despite the trials verse 4 i am exceedingly joyful in that season and notice that paul teaches us in every almost every letter to be joyful in tribulation do you read that verse verse 4 i'm exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation because He's teaching us to be joyful, not in circumstances. He's teaching us to be joyful in trusting in God. You see that in the face of suffering, you can be joyful today. In the, in the face of tribulation, you can be joyful today. And you can also even be encouraged today, Today, as He rejoiced in serving Him sacrificially. This is the tribulation that, that we're going through. However, I can remain joyful. You know in, in Philippians chapter 2 verse 17, Paul describes himself as being poured out as a drink offering, as a sacrifice at the altar of service for the church. He was sacrificially serving them, therefore he went through many tribulations. That's, that's real sacrificial service. It costs you something. If it doesn't cost you anything, can you call it a sacrifice? No, you can't. In Philippians 2 17, he says this, Yes, and if I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice... And service of your faith, I'm glad and I rejoice with you all. <laughs> Just imagine, would you say that? If I get to sacrifice in order to serve you, then I'm glad and I'm rejoicing with you all. What an attitude. What an example. If I get to sacrifice while I serve you and I'm poured out, then I'm glad and I rejoice with you all. Now let's talk about the tribulation that he was encountering or that he was facing, because in verse 5, he's going to describe that type of tribulation. But it's no tribulation that me and you haven't gone through. It's no tribulation that we won't go into. It's a tribulation in where we can learn to be joyful in every season. Do you know that maybe God is taking you through a new season in life right now? Maybe a new, this starting this new year. And we find ourselves through trials or through tribulations. In the midst of that, God has an encouragement for us through every trial and every tribulation that we go through. Let's read verse 5 and 6 as we find that out. Verse 5 says this, For indeed we came to Macedonia or Philippi, and think about the exhaustion that he had faced as he served them. He didn't just say, I'm going to serve you when it's convenient. He said, I'm going to serve you, it's going to cost me something. I'm going to get tired when I serve you. He was fully committed to live or to die with them. Indeed when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. We were exhausted, we were tired, we were fatigued. But we were troubled on every side. Not only were we t- tired, we were also troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. Well, that just sounds like a rough life. <laughs> have you ever had a tough week or a tough day and you feel, man, outside, there are so many troubles physically. I have so many troubles with either family or my body or my health. Outside, there are many troubles. And inside, I feel every pressure, anxiety now, fear, depression now. All these feelings that he was getting. He's saying, there is a battle coming in my life from every direction. Within there is a battle. Outside there is a battle. Why? Because every person that wants to make a great impact in service will also face great conflict. If you want to make a great impact, you will face great conflict. And he teaches us that. As his ministry made great impact, he says, you know what? From every side... From the outside, now, there are troubles, and from the inside, there are fears, there's anxiety, there's fear, there's a a mental, spiritual warfare that's taking place, there is a discouragement in my mind that's taking place, and if that's not enough, outside, there's also conflict, (laughs) with either my health, or my body, or or my family, if it's not one thing he's saying, it's the other. (laughs) Have you ever felt that way, that you come out of one trial, and then there's another one waiting for you, and you're like, Lord, are you serious? I just came out of this one. You're going to take me right into this other one. Paul felt the same way. If it's not one thing, it's the other. That's what he's saying. I'm getting battles and spiritual warfare. They're coming from every direction now. But he's teaching us the cost of a life that is filled with blessing, of great blessing. A life that's filled with great blessing is also a life that's filled with great conflict. Do you see that everything that he had to put himself, the spiritual warfare that he was going through, outside Now we're conflicts inside we're fears. Have you ever felt that way? That the pressure is so much that you cannot bear it any longer. What happens when you feel that the pressure is so strong that I cannot do I can't do it with my family, I can't do it with my finances, I can't do it with my mental now state. I'm weak. There's nothing that I can do now. What happens now? Naturally, guess what happens? We become discouraged. We become discouraged. It's happened to all of us that these things happen in our lives and we naturally become discouraged in the midst or in the middle of spiritual warfare. That is when you are being attacked and we become discouraged because of the pressure that we're feeling. But how many of us know that when we are discouraged, God knows it. And God knows exactly when to bring to us, exactly the time when to bring to us a word of encouragement. God knows when to bring to you a word of encouragement. There've been times in my life where I've been so discouraged (laughs) And I'm just praying and I'm reading, I'm saying, Lord, just speak to me, minister to me, going through the things of ministry. And then I get a text from someone, hey man, I just, I listened to the message on this other day and I was just so blessed. And it's a refreshing word of encouragement for me to continue doing what God's called me to do. I know for you as well, that there have been moments in your life that you receive encouragement at just the right time. And he's going to tell us, I was, so dis- I was going into the place of discouragement, but God knows to encourage us at just the right time. Verse 6, it tells us, Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. Nevertheless, God, but God, I was facing this pressure. I was facing this conflict. I was facing this fear. I was facing the tribulation. But God, nevertheless, God, this is amazing. That God steps in, in the middle of your trial. Just think about it. Even last year, think about just trials before that you felt, I could not do it. But God showed up. But God intervened. God has a special ministry of encouragement ready for us as believers so that we continue growing. In fact, let's read it in verse 6. Nevertheless, God who comforts or who encourages the downcast or the discouraged comforted or encouraged us by the coming of Titus. Oh, this is beautiful. That God is promising to us encouragement in the moment of discouragement. God wants to give you encouragement today in the moment of discouragement. And I don't know, maybe you're facing a a moment of discouragement. God wants you now comfort now the downcast. What's the downcast? I feel the pressures outside in the family. I feel the pressures in the home. I'm breaking down. I, feel, I cannot handle this. But God who comforts the downcast comforted me. How did He comfort me? By the coming of Titus. God who comforts the downcast. You see, there is so much encouragement found here. That God would send someone as Titus to come and encourage. God places people in your life. God places people in our lives. So that we can become and encouraged or we can encourage them. Do you understand that's why fellowship is so important? God encouraged us by the coming of tithing. There are times where we push those people away. And when we're pushing those people away in our trial, we're also pushing away the, the encouragement that God wants for us. God will use human instruments to encourage the body of Christ. That's why it's so important for us to come to church. We, we are so discouraged oftentimes and we come to church and then we come out and sometimes we come and sometimes we don't. We're not fellowshipping with the body of believers. We're not in the worship, in the prayer, in God's word together. And guess what happens? We become discouraged and there's no way of encouraging ourselves outside of that. Outside of encouraging ourselves in the Lord. That's why fellowship is so important now, he says. God encourages us. God placed someone in my life. His name was Titus. New Living Translation says it this way. But God who encourages those who are discouraged, encourages us by the arrival of Titus. How many of us know here that God is the one, the author of mercy and the God of all comfort? That even when you are discouraged, when you're going through a trial, He is there. As the father of mercy. I love that in my trial. I can say, Lord, we can say, Lord, God, you are the Father of all mercies. But also you are the author of all comfort. In Second Corinthians, already, in the very first chapter of this letter, he started with encouragement. Because he knew that the church needed it. And maybe today you need it. You're going through something. You need the encouragement. Second Corinthians chapter one, verse three tells us this blessed be your praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who comforts us. The Father of mercies it tells us. And the God of all comfort. The Father of mercies. The God of all comfort. Who comforts us in all our tribulations. That we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble. With the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us. So our consolation also abounds through Christ. Who is the Lord? He is the Father of mercies. He's the God of all comfort. He is the God of all comfort. And here he's saying, I was discouraged. However, the presence of Titus was a joy for me. He was an encouragement to me. We need to practice this. Let's read verse 7. And not only by his coming, his coming was an encouragement. You see how that's why coming is an encouragement. That's why being in fellowship is an encouragement because God uses people to encourage us. We must practice that. We must exercise that. The gift of encouragement it's important to practice the gift of encouragement. There are sometimes, we're too scared to encourage someone, but what would it happen if you just encourage them just at the right time and God lifted them up from that place of trial and of testing? You see, you encourage people by coming and, and Paul experienced that comfort through that human instrument that God had placed now, which was Titus. That's why it's important to get plugged in. Because when you're plugged in, guess what? You're going to go through conflicts. Absolutely. But you also will be encouraged. You also will be encouraged. Why? With one another. Proverbs chapter 27 verse 17 tells us this. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. You want to be sharpened? There are a lot of times we want to be sharpened. And we let the world sharpen us the way the world wants to see us. There are a lot of times we want to stay sharp when it comes spiritually. But it happens in the word of God in prayer. It happens also in fellowship. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. We need to be sharpened by one another. That's exactly why we need a Titus in our life. Ask yourself, who's that Titus in my life that is always encouraging me? Who can I be a Titus to that I encourage the downcast that are going through trials and tribulations in their lives? Not only did Titus encourage me in verse 7, he's saying, but also by the consolation or the encouragement with which he was comforted in you. Not only was he, I was encouraged by his presence, encouraged me, but also I was encouraged by the news that he brought not only is your presence encouraging to those that are here at church, you coming to pray, you coming to worship, you spending time with one another is encouraging, but also with the news or the report that He brought now from them, the consolation which he, and he was comforted in you, when He told us, verse 7, of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. You see, the heat, now Titus came with the report of the church. And this report was an encouragement now to Paul. Because Paul is saying here now, I received a news from you because of what he told me now. And these were words of affirmation. That also encourages someone. Now you think, you know what? That person knows that I'm with them and I don't have to tell them. Well, let me tell you something. When you do tell them, it encourages them. How do you think your husband or wife will feel, that co-worker? Maybe your boss, your, your son, your daughter. A mother, a parent would feel. When you now tell them with words of affirmation how much you desire to be with them, how much you love them. you know how far the words of affirmation go here? He's saying, not only was I encouraged with Titus coming, I was also encouraged when Titus told me that you actually wanted me to come. (laughs) I was encouraged when Titus gave me these words of affirmation that you had an earnest desire for me. I was encouraged by that. By those words that you longed to be with me. I pray that today you would go and you would encourage someone. You would tell them, you know what? I, I am really encouraged by what you're doing. Oh, you're doing such a great job. Or I, I want to spend more time with you. Or I love you now. Because that pouring encouragement to someone else is a spiritual gift from the Lord. It's a spiritual gift from God. And we need more encouragement in the body of Christ. We should never be scared to encourage someone because we think that they're going to become prideful because we encourage them. That is false. <laughs> we should say, you know what? I want to encourage that person. Now he heard the words of affirmation, but also he heard this. They're mourning, they were sorrow, they were repenting now of their attitude. You're mourning. I was also encouraged that you actually were repenting. That's also encouraging as well, because there was a, an awakening taking place in their lives. And your zeal or your loyalty for me, so I rejoice and even more. Why is he rejoicing? He has an attitude because he, they describe them now, the church, Titus described them as a church with an attitude of repentance but also an attitude of acceptance of that message. So it encouraged him. How encouraging it is for you to know that that person that you love is accepting the gospel. That's encouraging. That Your children, your church, those that you serve with is accept, are accepting the message. That is encouraging. For Paul, that was encouraging. I'm so encouraged that not only do you want to see me, I'm encouraged that Titus came. I'm encouraged that you're repenting, but I'm also encouraged that you're receiving the message. There was a spiritual revival taking place here. Let's read here verse 8 now, as now he felt the encouragement from them. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, as he is rejoicing with them, for even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, Though I did regret it, for I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. He's saying, now you are repenting. Now there's a change. Now there's a transformation. Now there's an attitude that has shifted now, and now you're accepting the message. You're repenting. I I am joyful to this. Though for a while I wasn't joyful, though for a while I was sorrowful. In verse 8, look at he tells them, even though I made you sorry, With my letter, I don't regret it. What letter is he talking about? Some people think there's a letter that we don't have, but we can just look at 1 Corinthians, and we know that that was a very hard letter for them to receive, a hard message for them to receive. He said, initially, I was sorry, but I don't regret it anymore. And he said, actually, I'm sorry, not sorry, actually. (laughs) I didn't regret this at first, but actually, I don't regret it because of what it produced in you. Have you ever felt that, man, I just feel bad because I had to tell them the truth and it might have hurt their feelings. I don't know how they felt or, or I don't know if, if, if maybe they're going to be upset with me or, or, man, it's tough to give hard messages. And I'll be the first one to tell you. There are times that I leave on Sunday. I'm like, man, I, I just feel bad. <laughs> but it's the word of God. It's God speaking and this message is direct. And it's necessary, it's healthy for the church. This is what he's telling them. He said, I know initially you were sorry about this message. You thought it was tough, this severe letter that I sent you. But I don't regret it even as hard and as direct as the exhortation was. I do not regret it. I know that it was painful for you to receive it, but it was only for a little while. That's why it's important to stay biblical. Because the difficult messages that we receive from God's word, the difficult ones are the ones that are necessary. And maybe God's speaking to your heart to say, you know what, there's a direct message from God's Word that you need to now confront without condemning in love, but you need to be confront with a difficult message because it's necessary and it produces godliness. It's the direct messages, the hard messages, the exhorting messages, the messages that rebuke our sin, that those are the ones that produce godliness. You want some encouragement? We need these messages. He said, I was, I was sorry now. Because I knew it was hard for me to give this message, for you to receive this letter from me. But I know that's what you needed to hear the most of the time. And I glad, I'm glad I sent it. Let's read it. verse 8 and 9. I, I, though I did regret it, for I perceived that the same epistle made you sorry, or it made you mourn, it made you hurt a little bit, though only for a while. You see, that sting that you're going to feel when someone calls you out, it's going to be a temporary sting, but however if you receive it well, it's going to produce in you repentance. And that's exactly why Paul was saying, I am glad that I sent it to you and I do not regret it. There is nothing to regret about you pulling someone out of a life of sin. There is nothing to regret about that. Because you have rescued someone. There's nothing to regret about calling someone out in love. Because you've told them directly what the Word of God says, not what you think. As hard as it is, Paul saying, as hard as it was for me to tell you, I had to. And it was difficult for me. And, and I, there was part of me, Paul is saying, that I did not want to make you feel this way. However, I don't regret it. I don't regret it. Verse 9, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry. I'm not happy that you were sorry. I, I wasn't happy that you had to feel that way temporarily. That maybe you, you felt the conviction, you felt the exhortation. I'm not sorry about that. But that your sorrow led to repentance that's what we need for our sins there are a lot of times we're living in sin and there's no sorrow we have to pray to be a church that's holy that but when there is sin in our lives the holy spirit will convict us and that they would be sorrow because sorrow produces repentance and that's the only thing the only the only uh one that can give and produce that sorrow is the holy spirit not us we can't try to convict someone <laughs> Making them feel bad so that they can feel... Conv- that, that is not how it works. The sorrow the Holy Spirit produces in someone's life. And that sorrow is now changes someone. As painful as that sorrow feels, as hard as that conviction feels in that person's life, it leads them to repentance. And that is the end result that we should desire. Because it caused them to change. It, it, now He's teaching them for life change. He's not teaching them for motivation. It's not a message that's going to make you feel good, that's going to motivate you, that's going to pump you up. It's not about that. It's a healthy message that's necessary and godly sorrow is completely healthy in the life of the believer. We need godly sorrow. We need to cry. We need to repent. We need to earnestly say, Lord, give me tears for the sins in my life because godly sorrow produces repentance. It changes my life. When was the last time you felt sorrow for the sin or the wrong or the error that was taking place for the pride in your life. There are times where, man, sometimes I'm driving, I'm talking to the Lord, I'm going to work. And, and there's some godly sorrow that the Lord convicts me. And I, man, I feel like, man, I'm so ashamed of that. But I say, thank you, Lord. Because this is what the beginning of repentance in our lives. The godly sorrow. Ask the Lord, Lord, produce godly sorrow in my life. Because that's going to lead to repentance. Now, verse 9, let's continue reading. It says, as as we read it, it says for you were made sorry in a godly manner your sorrow led to repentance and you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss uh, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing you see it really didn't hurt you in fact it was profitable for you it didn't it actually it was good for you it was healthy for you you didn't suffer any loss from us in anything. We told you and it, it, you were harmed by us in no way. You might have think, oh, that person hurt me. If, you, if if that exhortation took you from sin, took you out, if it led to repentance, then they did you no harm. and In fact, it was profitable that they told you that. Because it was needed. You want to be comfortable in your sin? You know what happens when you're comfortable in your sin? There's no godly sorrow. And we have to ask the Lord, Lord, give me godly sorrow that would lead to repentance. The New Living Translation reads this verse. Now, I'm glad I sent you that, not because it hurt you, but because of the, or the pain that it caused you, but because it, you repented and the, it changed your ways. It was the kind of sorrow that God wants His people to have so that you were not harmed by us in any way. He's saying, you were never harmed with us in any way, in any manner. Therefore, this godly sorrow was necessary in your life. What does godly sorrow do? Number one, it puts trust. Now you have trust in the Lord. I have godly sorrow, now I have to trust God. to cover now my sins with His blood. That's what godly sorrow does. But godly sorrow also now, it produces or reminds you of the goodness of God. And the Bible tells us it is the goodness of God that draws us into repentance. Godly sorrow. There's a difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is an emotion that you feel bad. But it doesn't produce any repentance. You feel bad. I know. Yeah, I know. I get it. This and that. I feel bad. The next day I wake up, I still haven't repented. That is the worldly sorrow. That leads now to death. Because you never repent from your sin. However, godly sorrow is by the Spirit of God. It convicts you and it causes you to repent. To change your ways. It's there for life change. And it rescues you and it saves you. Verse 10. Let's read it. For godly sorrow produces repentance. (laughs) Do you see how we need godly sorrow? And this is a sorrow that changes the way that we think. This is the sorrow that changes the way of our intentions. This is the sorrow that changes the way our motivations work, our purpose. This is a sorrow that we need in our lives. It's more than just a feeling. It's a feeling that now uh, moves us into action and describes a change in our mind and a change in our actions. Do you need some change of mind and actions today? And tell God, Lord, give me godly sorrow because I need to change my mind and my actions. That's what godly sorrow produces. If it doesn't produce anything, if it doesn't produce repentance, then it's not godly sorrow. You see how, so- how repentance is needed now? We depend- repentance is so needed. In verse 10 it tells us, it produces repentance. What does it lead to? Leading to salvation. Not to be regretted you cannot regret that type of sorrow never regret that type of sorrow but the sorrow of the world produces death what is the sorrow of the world the sorrow of the world is just emotion it's just i'm still stuck in failure i'm never going to get out of this things are never going to become right that is the sorrow of the world why does it produce death because there's never repentance And therefore, we have to ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, produce godly sorrow in my life because I want now repentance to take place. I love what Alan Redpath said and I'm going to read it to you as we finish. Godly sorrow that leads to repentance, therefore, is a sorrow that leads to a change of purpose, of intentions, and of actions. That is godly sorrow. He goes on, he says, it is not the sorrow of idle tears. It's not a sorrow of just idle tears that does nothing. It is not crying by your bedside because once again you fail. Or it is not in vain or in regret, wishing things had never happened, wishing you could have lived those moments again. No, it is not that. That is not godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is a change of purpose, of intentions, a change of direction, and a change of actions. Godly sorrow is not just wishing things were different. Godly sorrow is saying, I surrender to God and I'm here, Lord. I want things to change. I want to repent. That is godly sorrow. And there's a difference between the worldly sorrow and the godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow, we can leave with that today. Saying, you know what, I feel so bad. However, tomorrow I wake up and I'm still living in the sin. I choose not to repent. However, godly sorrow says, I'm changing my purpose, my mind, my intentions. Because that's what leads me to salvation. It rescues me from my sin. And we need a rescuing of our sins. We need a rescuing of our sin. We don't need to be encouraged or comfortable in our sin. We need a rescuing of our sins. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, that we can be rescued, Lord, in our sins through you, Lord. We thank you, Jesus, because of your blood, Lord. We thank you, God, because of the sacrifice that you have done on the cross, Lord. That because of your blood, Lord, we have promises that can cleanse us and lead us now. And I pray that you would produce godly sorrow in our lives daily. It's not just a one-time thing. It's It's not a momentary act. It's an everyday thing. We need godly sorrow. We cannot be comfortable in the sin that we're living in, God. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would do it only, God. It would be a sorrow that produces repentance. That leads us to repentance, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for your...